Well, good morning, South Fellowship. It is great to see you today. Um, if you're here for the first time, you have come on a very, very strange day. <clears throat> Just going to throw that out there. We're glad you're here, though. Uh, we are finishing up a series that we're calling Brave in the New World. And over the last two months, we've been tackling sort of difficult issues socially and trying to figure out what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus in this new world. How many of you would agree that the world is changing quite rapidly? Okay. Actually, that's not just a feeling. As sociologists study our cultural moment, they're saying that things are changing at a more rapid pace than they have ever changed before. So that's not just a visceral reaction. That's an, a reality, uh, according to uh, sociologists. Last week, we talked about the scriptures and science, and we talked about this perceived dichotomy, chasm between what the scriptures say and what science says. And we actually said that you don't need to choose between scripture and science. You can actually be someone who loves the Bible and loves telescopes and microscopes. And that's, a, that's an okay and a good thing. In fact, that's the way it's designed. Today, we're going to end this series by talking about sexuality. And as I've thought about this, I, I don't know that there's a more contentious, debated, and emotional subject in our culture today. And so here's what I want to promise you. I want to promise a few things. Number one, I want to promise to do my best to wrestle with what the scriptures actually say. Number two, I want to do my best to be an equal opportunity offender. So if halfway through you're like, yes and amen, just wait. Just wait, okay? And opposite. If halfway through you're like, I'm not sure I like this guy, just wait. Just wait, um, because I promise that everybody will walk out of here thinking I didn't go far enough, okay, on whatever perspective they have on this issue. And I just want to say, finally, I'm not standing up here because I have all of the answers. I just drew the short straw, okay? Um, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, I don't have all the answers. I'm a sojourner. I'm a struggler, just like you are. And I want to do my best to wrestle with what the scriptures actually teach about this subject, we live, like I said, in a cultural moment where things are changing in regards to sexuality quicker than they have ever changed. In 2008, President Obama was interviewed by Pastor Rick Warren, and he stood up, sat up on Rick Warren's stage at Saddleback Church in Southern California and very clearly said that he was opposed to gay marriage. Well, in 2015, gay marriage was legalized all over the U.S., and a lot of the voices that were very adamantly against it were then for it. And today, around two-thirds of the people in our country would say, I'm for gay marriage. Two-thirds. So I just tell you that to show how quickly that tide has turned in our cultural moment. We've seen the transgender movement catalyzed. And while that seems like a new phenomenon, I just want to tell you it's not the surgeries associated with it and the transition possible is new, but the desire isn't. It's been around for a long time. We've seen, even right now, you could go to the TLC channel on your television and you could watch multiple shows about polygamy in our day and our time right now. Sexuality is a complicated thing. And right now in downtown Denver, there's a gay pride march going on. And there's churches out there picketing. And we're sitting in here. 
talking about it all. There's tension, isn't there? There's tension. My goal this morning is not to give an entire discourse on sexuality or a complete diagnostic of our cultural moment. That would be fun and interesting, but it would take hours and hours and hours. I'm not going to talk about the politics behind the sexual sort of sexual revolution of the 1960s and where that's left us. I'm not going to talk a lot about the transgender movement. I'm not going to talk a lot about the debate between gender and sexuality. All of those things are things that we could talk about. What I want to talk about, though, this morning is how do we as a church wrestle with this issue of sexuality specifically? specifically homosexuality and the LGBTQ community as a whole. What's our perspective on that? What's our direction in that? How do we respond to that? Well, there's no shortage of debate. Unfortunately, there's also no shortage of pain. And if you were to do an interview of young people across the U.S., there's a number of ways that they would describe the church. They'd say that you're hypocritical, we're hypocritical, They'd say that we're judgmental. And then in the top three things they'd say about the church, they're anti-gay. They're they're homophobic. I don't know about you, but as a follower of Jesus, that just absolutely breaks my heart. So here's my question. What do the scriptures teach? And how can we as a church community chart a course that will serve us well moving forward into this brave new world where we continue to hold on to the scriptures and say, we believe that the scriptures are God's word to us, and we believe that there's a world out there that God has called us to passionately love. So if you have your Bible, open first to Genesis chapter 2, because in order to talk about sexuality, we have to start at the very beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 2. And you know, if you were here last week, you're, you sort of heard us talk about the difference between Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 2 starts to dive a little bit deeper into what does it mean to be human. And one of the things that it means distinctly to be human is that we were made for connection with one another. Listen to the way that the scriptures say it in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is, say it with me, church, not good. Now, now, if you've been reading straight through the poem in Genesis chapter 1, you get to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1, seven times, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Seventh time, it's very good. And then in Genesis chapter 2, it's not good. What changed? Nothing. Sin didn't, did not enter the picture yet. God looks at his creation and says, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, now, before we get bent out of shape on this word helper, let me just give you a little bit of background. It's this word in the Hebrew, ezer. Will you say that with me? Ezer. Yeah, it's used 21 times in the scriptures. Two times it's used to describe Adam's wife in this text. Three times it's used to describe other people. 16 times out of the 21, 16 times in the scripture, this word helper is used to describe, any guesses? God, God. He's our helper. It literally means um, powerful advocate. It means rescuer. Somebody who comes alongside a a weaker party to strengthen them. That's what it means. 
And so God says, listen, Adam, I've made you a helper that's fit for you. But here's his point. Here's his point. People were created for relationships and designed for intimacy. Every single person that walks the face of the globe longs for intimate connection with other people, longs to be known, longs to be valued, longs to be loved. That's a universal, you have never laid eyes on somebody who wasn't for des- designed for relationship and wired for intimacy. Take that in for a second. So when Simon and Garfunkel write a song, <laughs> like I'm a rock, right? I've built walls of fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need for friendship because friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock, I am an island. You... It was different up here. Like if we were in a karaoke bar, you guys would all have gone, and I, okay, but you didn't. Maybe because it's 9.30, I don't know. But here's the thing, Simon and Garfunkel knew that was all a sham. Like they ended their song by saying, yeah, but a rock feels no pain. And a rock never cries. And they knew it wasn't possible to shut down relationship and intimacy. They longed for it. And so as we see in this Genesis narrative, one of the ways humanity tends to the longing for intimacy is through marriage. It's the way that God met that longing for Adam in the garden. He created Eve. Now, I want to be very specific in saying it's one of the ways. One of the ways. Because I think in in the church, I don't think, I know because I've talked to enough of you. The church can be a really, really difficult place to be a single person. We elevate marriage really, really high. In fact, higher than the scriptures actually elevate marriage. You do know that Jesus was the most whole person to ever walk the face of the planet. Do you not? And he was unmarried. So if marriage is the pinnacle for human existence, Jesus never reached it. Okay, number one. Number two, man, can I just say, like, my, my heart is, I long for a day where it's easier for a single person to find community in the church than it is for them to find a hookup online. Come on, come on. I, that's my heart. I long for that. That's not the case now. I'll just tell you that. That is not the case now. But I long for a day when that is the reality. And so what God does, he says, like, you were wired for intimacy. You were wired for relationship. One of the ways I'm going to give you to meet that need is through marriage. Well, you flip over to Matthew chapter 19 with me. Because in the beginning of this message, we talked about the way that science and the scriptures are not um, at odds with each other, that the world is created with design, and so are human beings. So are human beings. There's, There's a design, and there's a design for this thing called marriage, one of the ways that God meets the longing for intimacy and relationships in humanity. We there, Matthew chapter 19? There's two times that we have recorded that Jesus taught about marriage. Ironically, both of those times, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, he's talking about divorce. Okay? 
So you just put that in your back pocket, do whatever you want with it, but that's just true, okay? Verse one. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered into a region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came to him and what? Tested him, right? So as we've been in this Brave New World series, what we've seen is a lot of the ways people tried to test Jesus are still contemptuous issues today, right? Not all, the world has changed but the issues we wrestle with have remained the same. They tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, I think this word, these two words, any cause, should actually begin with capitals, any cause, because they're having a debate. There's a cultural debate that's going on. You had two rabbinic parties that were going head to head, you had the party of Hillel, and he was sort of a more liberal um, rabbi. And what Hillel taught was, um, you can divorce your wife for any reason. She burns the toast, divorce her. She stops pleasing you, divorce her. You don't like the way she looks anymore? You can divorce her. Any cause. And then you had another rabbi named Shammai. And Shammai said, no, you can't divorce your wife for any cause, only for being unfaithful. That, the breaking of the marriage covenant, the breaking of the marriage vow. These were the two camps. And their question was, Jesus, who do you side with? Sort of more liberal Hillel or more conservative Shammai? Which is it, Jesus? Well, see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And don't miss this. Jesus sides with the more conservative Shammai because he is so adamantly committed to the value of women, to the protection of women, that they wouldn't just be cast out for burning the toast. He goes, no, 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 I side with Shammai because I side with women. And then he continues. He answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, speaking of God, speaking of himself, made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's what I want to do. I'd like to propose to you that in this text, Jesus gives a very, very clear design for marriage. Let's unpack it. He says he creates them male and female. So, so he would say marriage is designed uh, for two heterosexual people to come together. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two wasn't designed for more than two wasn't designed for polygamy, that monogamy is God's design. Keep that in mind. The two shall become one flesh. There's this idea of covenant. Like we're committed to each other. The good and the bad, rich and poor, sickness, health. Like we're, we're in this together. And finally, he says, let not man separate. That it's designed to be a permanent arrangement. So according to Jesus, 
God's design for marriage is heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, and permanent. That's his design. Pretty clear. It's also the historic stance of the church for the last 2,000 years. It's why you could systematically walk through this and find instances that God says, um, uh, either I'm against this or this never works out well. Let me give you one. The most contentious issue in our day and our time, homosexuality, and it's the first one that Jesus addressed, a man and a woman. Here's the way that Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulter, adulterers, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, notice what homosexuality and sexual impurity are in a category with a number of things, but it's there. It's there. Here's why it's there. It's there because it goes against the design that God clearly laid out for marriage from the beginning. So anything that goes against this design would be considered sin. Okay, now, here's the time where I just want to hit pause. Time out. If you're ready to cue confetti, hold it, okay? If you're ready to throw tomatoes throw them at Dan, okay? Or, or hold them, or hold them, okay? Because here's the problem, you guys. We live in a broken world. If you've ever felt ashamed of your body, if you've ever had an affair, if you've ever looked at a person in lust, if you've ever looked at pornography, if you've thought you don't measure up sexually, if you've kept a secret from your spouse, if you failed to enter into a relationship because of fear, if you've taken advantage of another person, if you haven't allowed yourself to be fully known by your spouse, if any of those things apply to you, your sexuality is broken. I hope I just implicated everybody in this room. I certainly implicated myself. And as a heterosexual male who's never slept with anybody other than my wife, my sexuality is broken. All of ours is. All of ours is. All of our sexuality is broken in some way. Yours is, mine is. Just read through Genesis 2 and 3. You'll see it's not the way, this world is not the way that God intended it to be. Okay, so here's the question, you guys. Here's the question. It's the question I don't hear people asking. How does God respond to our brokenness? How does he respond to our broken sexuality? In all the reading that I've done about this over the last few months, really intensely and specifically, but over the last few years, I have not found anybody doing an expose of these issues. So I've clearly said, here's what I think God's design is for marriage. Heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, permanent. That's his design. What happens though when the design's broken? How does God respond when the design doesn't hold up. 
Here's a key principle, and we'll see it displayed here in just a moment, but I want you to write it down before we jump into it in a lot of detail. Here's a key principle. God always meets us where we are, not where he wishes we were. God always meets us where we are, not where he wishes we were. So we could describe this as accommodation sometimes in the scriptures, right? God says, I didn't design you, Israel, to have a king. And they're like, we want a king. And he's like, it's going to go really bad for you. And they're like, we want a king. And he says, okay, here's a king. Do you know that God says in multiple times, I never wanted you to have sacrifices? This isn't about sacrifices. And you're going, what's the whole book of Leviticus about then? (laughs) And he goes like, I know the culture you're in. You needed it. I didn't need it. I never wanted it. I wanted you to be people of mercy and justice. You needed it, not me. He always meets us where we are, not where he wishes we were. Matthew chapter 19, verse 7, case and point. They said to him, after Jesus has just given the design for marriage, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Ryan's summary. Jesus, you have just waxed eloquent about the design for marriage. Really beautiful. We're with you. We're for it. It's so good. Can you explain one thing to us, Jesus? If that's your design, why did you give divorce? Because that clearly goes against your design. One man, one woman, one flesh for life. We we knocked the Pharisees for a lot of things. They stuck the dismount here. That's the right question to ask. Why would you give accommodation for divorce if it was never part of your design? How many think that's a good question? Really good question. Good, good. We are tracking on that together. And your follow-up question might be, what's the deal? God, God, aren't you going against the grain of what you've said you want? Yes. Yes, he is. God goes against his own design in giving the Israelites the ability to divorce. No other way to read that passage. And then he says, let me tell you why, though. Let me tell you why. Because my guess is you're wondering. My guess is you're going, what do we do with that? And he says, all right, just hit pause. Let me tell you why. He said so because of the hardness of your hearts. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Just because God gave it doesn't mean he wanted it. He makes accommodation because of things that go wrong in marriage, whether it's an affair or an addiction to pornography or some way that your heart grows hard and covenant is broken. Jesus doesn't just cast people aside because their hearts are hard. He meets them where they are. And here's what he does. He gives them the best that he possibly can given the reality of their situation. Because God always deals in reality. And it's the best he can give 
Some people, given the circumstances of their life. And the best he can give some is divorce. And he gives it even though it's not his desire. Which, by the way, I'll just take a quick time out here and say, that should cause all sorts of questions to be stirred up in our mind. And they're the right questions. What does God do with things like gay marriage? What does God do with, I mean, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. All right, can I add another layer of complexity? Okay, one person said yes. I'm going to take that little, (laughs) I'm going to go for it. Did you know that there are times in the scriptures when God doesn't just allow the breaking of his design? There are times where he commands the breaking of his design. Let me show it to you. It's called leveret marriage. Will you say that with me? Leveret marriage, okay? It's described in Matthew or Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and no son uh, and has no dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, make love to her, and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, how many of you, if this law was still intact, would have wanted to have more of a say over who your brother married? (laughs) Yeah, me too, me too. What's going on here? What's going on here? Why in the world? Because presumably this other brother's married. If you want to read a really interesting story, read through Genesis chapter 38 sometime this week because we have this in the patriarchal line. We even have this in the Jesus line. Read Matthew chapter one if you want to do a really interesting study on that in Tamar. Anyway, but what's going on? God is commanding polygamy. Why? Why? Well, in this situation, if this woman, her husband passes away before they have children, she's going to be outcast. She's going to be put into the street. She's going to be forced into prostitution. It's going to be a hellish life for her. And so while God says, polygamy isn't my design, It's better than a woman being cast into the streets and being taken advantage of. I hope we're starting to wrestle with the title of this message. It's complicated. It's complicated. It's not complicated. It's not just complicated culturally. It's complicated biblically. I mean, think about this. David, King David... A man after God's own heart, the only person that said that about in scripture, had seven wives. Now, just to be clear, you can never find a situation in scripture where polygamy works out well for anyone. Just just want to make that as clear as I possibly can. You also cannot find a passage in scripture that condemns it. Now, the New Testament make some prohibitions. Um, If you do have multiple wives, or or I guess multiple husbands, but if you have multiple wives, 
you cannot be an elder in the church. So next time we do nominations and appointing of elders, if you have multiple wives, you've got to tell the elders we can't let you be an elder. But that's the only prohibition given. Why in the world would God allow this kind of fracture, command this kind of fracture to his design? Here's why. Because God values people over his design. People are the most important thing to God. He knows a polygamous relationship is going to be difficult. That's an understatement. But it's better. It's better than somebody getting taken advantage of. Like, a way, like the way this woman would have. See, the design was made for people, not the other way around. The design was made for the people, not the other way around. Now, lest I don't fully do my job as a pastor, and a lot of you are going, you, you aren't, that's fine. We can disagree on that. What we need to recognize, though, is that God, there are instances where God says, I will break my design in order to value people, and then there are instances where he said, I will not break my design. Okay, let me give you one example. First Corinthians chapter five. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind, talking to the church, of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So he's saying, man, that someone's sleeping with their stepmom. They're in the church. They're proud of it. You need to remove them from the church because of the atrocity of what's being done. Paul will go on to say at the end of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about the church. That we need to be concerned with our sexuality and tackle that one first. So we might summarize his statement like this. While God may command you to marry your sister-in-law, he will not accommodate you if you want to sleep with your stepmom. I didn't see anybody writing that down. <laughs> I almost put it up there to say, just don't want you to miss it. The scriptures are really, really clear, really, really clear in condemning sexual immorality or what we might call promiscuity or what we might call sex outside of the bonds of marriage. It's important to note just how seriously the early church took this. The early church was known for three primary things. Number one, that made them distinct in the Roman Empire. Number one, they cared for the sick and the dying. Number two, they were generous with their money. Number three, they were sexually faithful. The husbands were sexually faithful to their wife. It was revolutionary in the early church. And Christians adamantly rejected sexual promiscuity, and it was one of their primary main platforms as a church. But please notice, if you go back and just flip uh, one chapter back over, if you're on 1 Corinthians chapter 5, all of the other things that the church, that Paul condemned, along with sexual immorality and homosexuality, he rebuked greed. I mean, we're not trying to legislate that, are we? Idolatry, abuse, drunkenness, and people that take advantage of others. 
all in the same category as this issue of sexuality. So can I just get on my platform just a little bit? I'm gonna, it's a small platform, okay? I think one of the things the outside world sees about the church is that we're inconsistent. Is that we're inconsistent. So I was living in California in 2008 when Prop 8 was a huge thing out there. Prop 8 was essentially a proposition put forward to say constitutionally that marriage was between a man and a woman. That proposition actually passed, and then in 2010 was overturned by a federal district judge. Okay. But what happened was you had these line in the sand drawn, right? You're either for Prop 8 or you're against Prop 8. And you've got to choose. You're either, you're either for the gay community or you're against the gay community. You either love the LGBTQ plus group as a whole or you hate them. And if you're for them, you vote no on Prop 8. And if you hate them, you vote yes. And there was just venom. Venom being spewed back and forth, back and forth. And like I said before, I, I, I am convinced that God's design for marriage is heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, and permanent. That's what I believe that God designed marriage to be. But I also am convinced, please hear me on this, that God's design for followers of Jesus is that we would be known for our love. Amen. That we would be known for our love. And so the fact that, man, the church is paired with such hatred is just, it breaks my heart. And I hope it breaks yours too. And I hope as you see the complexity of this issue, you start to go, man, Jesus, what would you do? How would you live? What would you do, Jesus? if you were the senior pastor of South Fellowship Church and, and a lesbian couple started to attend here, which I, I hope they, they're here. I hope there's more of them that begin to come because they know that you love them, okay? A and a lesbian couple starts to attend and they have, let's just say they have two kids, okay? And they come to faith in Jesus. Praise be to God. And then they set up a meeting with me And they say to me, Ryan, we've been married for six years. We have two kids together. We love each other passionately. We love Jesus with our whole heart. We love our kids. And we love being a family together. What should we do? What do you tell them? What do you tell them? It's because we can have the quote-unquote issue figured out, but when it starts to have people and faces and stories attached to it, what would you do? Would you tell them, like, Paul says to some people, remain as you were before you were called. Would you tell him, get divorced, even though God hates divorce? Malachi chapter 2. 
what do we tell them? Do we tell them, continue to love Jesus with everything you are? Hold the issue before him. See what the Spirit says to you. It's complicated. It's complicated. I mean, our case study could be about someone that was born with both reproductive organs and the doctors had to make a decision on birth. Is this a man or a woman? Or it could be about someone who was abused and taken advantage of as a child. Or it could be about someone who you talk to their mom and mom goes, from the time they were three years old, I knew they were gay. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? One of my hopes, okay, one of my hopes today is to show you from the scriptures, not culturally, from the scriptures, it's not just black and white. And I know that because very few followers of Jesus would say polygamy is okay, even though the Bible doesn't seem to have an issue with it. So what do we do with this? Glad you asked. I've got three things. What does it look like to be brave in the new world when it comes to sexuality? Let's be the kind of people, followers of Jesus, who love everyone always, period. If you are a follower of Jesus, you do not get to decide which people you love. You simply get to decide how. And for those of us, for those of you who are here and you've been wounded by the church because of sexuality, or if you're listening online and you've been wounded, however you come across this message, I I just want to, from the bottom of my heart, say, I'm so sorry that you carry that pain. I am so sorry that you carry that pain. And some of it came from a place of hatred, and some of it came from a place of homophobia, And it is downright sin, and it's wrong. And I also want to say, sometimes it comes from a different place also. Sometimes it comes from people who are trying to wrestle with the scriptures, who want to live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, who want to be full of grace, who want to be full of truth, who, like me, believe that God's design is one thing, but our reality is another thing, and it's just so hard to figure out sometimes. Forgive us. Forgive us. Here's what I do know. Love everyone always. What I do know is that growing up being gay in the church, from what I've heard, is is an absolutely terrifying, difficult experience for people to have. It's why the suicide attempt rates for those who grow up gay in the church are off the charts. I hope that breaks our heart. Um, I do know that for those in the LGBTQ community, there is a market, no money to be made, but there's a market for moms and dads to stand during pride parades with a sign on that says free mom hugs and free dad hugs to give out hugs to people who have been ostracized from their own families. People who would say, my dad hasn't hugged me in years. I'm not invited to family dinner anymore. I'm not invited to Thanksgiving anymore. 
free mom hugs, free dad hugs, and they're just hugging people all day, you guys. I mean, something in us has to go, ah, we're broken. We all are. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, love everyone always. Jesus defended people he didn't agree with. He validated their humanity. He heard their story. He refused to label. He put himself in their place. If that sounds familiar, it's simply just our points from a message we gave a few weeks ago, um, tolerance in an age of contempt. Here's what I do know. Jesus had a very high standard for sexual integrity, and yet people who fractured that standard were drawn to Jesus. They were. Second, what does it look like to be brave in the new world? Live with fidelity. Live with fidelity. If you're single, be faithful. Treat other people who aren't your spouse in a way that honors them as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're married, be faithful to your spouse. That's what the scriptures would clearly say. In every instance, be faithful. And then finally, Invite people to follow Jesus. After doing a deep dive on this throughout the scriptures and seeing, man, there's so much tension here. I wanted to figure out what do I walk away with? What do I say to South Fellowship Church at the end of a message on sexuality? Here's what I want to say to you. Point people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Whether you're straight or gay or anything else, you are human. And in being human, God is calling us to Jesus. He's our salvation. He's our hope. He's our healing. He's our everything. And Jesus, and in Jesus, we are safe to be loved and molded more and more into his image and likeness. The scriptures say he does this through his kindness. So take all of your baggage and all of your brokenness and everything you're wrestling through and run to him this morning. Run to him this morning. Love everyone always. Give some free mom hugs and dad hugs today. Come on now. Live with fidelity and invite people, all people, to follow Jesus. In conclusion, so because of the complexity that I've, hopefully drawn out here, I believe that there's room at the table, Christianity, for differing opinions on this issue. That's my conviction personally. And there are strong, some strong followers of Jesus who love the scriptures, who disagree with me, and who would fall on a different side of this issue. And that's okay. That's okay. While I hold wholeheartedly to God's design for marriage, I don't know how God responds every time that design is fractured. To be honest, the scriptures threw me off a little bit. So if you're here today and you're gay, I want you to hear me say as clearly as I possibly can, we as a church are willing to walk with you. We're willing... We're willing to try to live as best we can in the tension of conviction and compassion. But I would also say, I would also say, and this is, I think, important, if you need to find a church that's more affirming of your position, 
That's not us. We want to wrestle with the tension we see in Scripture. If you need to go somewhere else where you can feel more supported in that, you're free to go. But just know we would love the chance to walk with you and try to walk in the tension of conviction and compassion. So here's this pastoral impartation I want you to receive before we go. So no matter where you are on life's journey, how you find yourself in this room today, you're welcome here. Young or old, you're welcome here. If you have brown skin, black skin, white skin, yellow skin, or any other color of skin, you are welcome here. If you're married or single, you're welcome here. If you're gay or straight, you're welcome here. If you cannot see or cannot hear, you're welcome here. If you're sick or well, you are welcome here. If you're a man or a woman, you are welcome here. If you're happy or sad, you are welcome here. If you are rich or poor, powerful or weak, you are welcome here. If you believe in God some of the time or none of the time or all of the time, you are welcome here. You, 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 you are welcome here. Let's be people of welcome Let's be people of love. Let's live with integrity and fidelity. And let's be a church that's passionately obsessed with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Oh, yeah, and, and happy Father's Day. <laughs> love you guys. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we're all strugglers and sojourners and wrestlers, if we're honest. So help us wrestle and walk well. God, help us to be people who are able to live in some of the gray areas, the things that we struggle with, the things that we disagree with, the things that we don't understand, the things that we doubt, the questions that we have. Lord, help us to live with all of them in attention that draws us to you and to you alone, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen.